many of you in your house, or maybe in the house you grew up in, had a, uh, maybe dishes or silverware that were reserved for special occasions or special people only? Anybody have that? <clears throat> like that fine set of china that you got when you got married and you've used three times since then? In my house, when I was growing up, we, we had a special set of dishes that had a special set of silverware, but we also had a special room that was for special occasions and special people. We called it the living room, right? Some people call it the formal living room. Uh, some people back in the day called it the parlor or the sitting room, and we had one. We had an entire room. Now, if you think I grew up in a big house, I did not. It was a three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that was right about 1,000 square feet, just a little bit over. That's the house I grew up in. It was small, and even in that small room, we had a place that was dedicated for special occasions and special people, and we called it the living room, which was attached to the dining room, which was also for special occasions and special people, which we never used. We dusted it every week, but we only used it like once or twice a year. Now, any of y'all have any of that in your home or grew up with that? If you did, if you had a special room or special things for special occasions or special people, you also know that those things and those places also have special rules about them, right? In our living room, there was a couch, that I could not sit on as a kid, right? That was okay, because it was a pretty uncomfortable couch anyway. It was fancy. But what really drove me crazy about that room is in front of that couch was this coffee table. On that coffee table was a dish of candy. And guess what the rule with that candy dish was? I can't eat it. Now, it had that candy in it. Maybe you've seen it where it's kind of like the wavy candy, you know, that's multiple colors. You know what I'm talking about? And the reason I think I couldn't eat it is, one, because it was, it was, it was pretty candy because I tasted it once, and it wasn't very good candy. Uh, so I was okay not being able to taste it. But, but the point is there was this special room that had these special rules, and, and, and the biggest rule about that living room was this, that in the living room, we had to behave, Right, That room was set, and those rules were set so that we could put our best foot forward for those special occasions and special people. Now, last week, Nick talked to us about uh, Jesus being greater than our religion, than any religion. And he showed us oftentimes in our relationship with God, we do these if-then-then-that statements. If I pray regularly, if I pray diligently, then God will give me a yes. That's the if, then, then, that. Or if I read my Bible every day, then God will bless me. That's the if, then, then, that. And what Nick showed us is that none of those things are guarantees in our faith. They may strengthen our faith. It's great to pray diligently. It's great to pray often. It's fantastic to read your Bible every day. And those strengthen our faith. But what they don't do is they don't provide any guarantees in our faith. And yet, we create our own personal religion with our own if-then-then-that statement. Well, today, this preacher in Hebrews is going to show us that this type of living, where you have these rules that make you behave, he's going he's to look at that again, and he's going to show us that there's actually a better way to life than doing that. That this better way 
doesn't make you behave by giving you rules to live by, that this better way gives you a life instead of rules. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Uh, If you need a Bible, there's some right in front of you, uh, and it's on page 845 in that Bible, or you can do what Scout said and uh, open up the Bible app, click on events, click on Fellowship Asheville, and all the stuff is there for us as well. And as you're turning there, we're continuing our series in Hebrews called Greater Than, where we're seeing that Jesus is greater than. He's greater than, than any struggle we face. He's greater than any success that we experience. He's greater than any doubt, fear, or failure that we have to do and all of those that we have to endure and all of those things. Jesus is greater. And today we're going to see how this idea of having rules to behave, and what we're going to do is we're going to call that living room living, right? Having a place where we have to behave, that's called living room living. And we're going to see how, how that is one way to live, but it doesn't give life. And what we're gonna see is that life comes from knowing and believing this reality, that Jesus is greater than any sin. Jesus is greater than any sin. Because you see, this living room living that we're gonna see, this living room living where we have to behave, is, is situated because It's a place where we put our very best out front, right? You use that fine china because your regular dishes are chipped. And for special occasions and special people, you only want to give them your best. You use the room that nobody sits in and that nobody uses because that's the best room in the house. And that's called living room living. But what we're going to see and hopefully walk out of here with this understanding is this, is that living room living never produces lasting life change. Say that 10 times fast, right? Living room living never produces lasting life change. There is a better way. And that's what we're going to see today. There's a better room. There's a better living than living room living. Watch this and we'll see this idea of living room living and, and a better room. In chapter nine, verse one, it says, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. Now, the preacher of Hebrews, now remember, we're, I keep referring to the preacher and I'm not referring to myself in third person. If you're new to fellowship, as we've been working our way through Hebrews, what we're seeing is that this letter to the Hebrews isn't a typical letter like you see in the New Testament because it's a sermon that's been preached. Now, what we don't know is we don't know who preached the sermon. We don't know who wrote down the sermon for us to have, but what we do know is who this sermon was preached to, and it was preached to a group of Hebrews. It was preached to a church of people that grew up in a Hebrew family, and they understood the Old Testament. They understood the the illustrations that that this preacher is using, And, and, and what he's doing today is he is taking them on a journey into their history when Moses led the nation of Israel around the desert. Well, actually, God led them, and then Moses uh, followed God, and the nation followed Moses, and they would have this place of worship called the tabernacle, and it was a tent. In this tent, they would roll up when God said move, and they would move, and when God said stay, they would stay, and, they'd, and they would have this tent uh, where they would go to worship God, and that's called the tabernacle. 
And if you notice, it says that this tent had regulations for worship. It had rules. And here's why. Because in this tabernacle, what this preacher is going to show us is that there are two rooms in this tabernacle. In one room, it's where the very presence of God dwelt. And so you have this tent that's right in the middle of this entire nation as they're traveling through the desert. And in one room of that tent, the the very presence of God dwelt. And what God did is he set these expectations, these rules of what it was like to, to worship and to come into the presence of that God who is leading them around the nation, now, when, around the desert. Now, when I do marriage counseling, I talk about expectations with couples. When I do premarital counseling, I talk about expectations with couples. And here's a, something that I say over and over and over again, and it's this, that unspoken expectations are broken expectations. And here's what I mean by that. We all have preferred rules of engagement in our relationships, right? I have ways that I want you to treat me, and you have ways that you want me to treat you. Those are called expectations. A lot of times, we know we have expectations when they're broken and our feelings are hurt. And that's when we realize there's an expectation there. Now, the only way to fix a broken expectation, and particularly the only way to avoid a broken expectation is to speak that expectation. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things I love to do, because with premarital counseling, y'all, it is rainbows and unicorns, right? And so I give them a piece of paper and I say, I want you to write down 20 expectations you have of your fiance when y'all get married. And there's nothing off limits. You write down every expectation you have. And inevitably they go, oh, 20? I don't think I have that many. (laughs) There's just no, just try. Start and see where it goes. And then I tell them, what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to share these expectations with your fiance until we meet here again. Keep them to yourself. And then we're gonna go through them one by one and you're gonna get a chance to respond to the expectation that your fiance has on you. And you can respond either cinch, which means no problem. You can respond sweat, which means I agree with you. That's a valid expectation, but it's going to take some work. Or you can respond no way, which means you are out of your mind if you think that's going to happen in our marriage. In premarital, there's never any no ways. It's all cinches and maybe one or two sweats because they feel like they need to have that. When I do that with married couples, it's not quite the same. (laughs) You see, in God, what he did when he set this tabernacle up is he gave the nation spoken expectations about what the relationship was to look like. And he did that with 10 commandments. And he said, this is the way I want you to worship me. This is the way I want you to engage with each other. And this is the way I want you to engage with those around you. And then he expanded on those 10 commandments with another 600 commands in the Old Testament of how to do those things. And those ones that that revolved around worship were the ones that this preacher's gonna focus in on, the ones that revolved around that tabernacle. And what he's going to do, this preacher is going to take us inside this tabernacle. And as he does, he's going to use this tabernacle as as an example of what I'm talking about when I talk about living room living. And so look at this. In verse 2, 
It says, uh, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was a lampstand and a table and the bread of presence is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of, the, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, I would love to go over each one of these because there's some beautiful pictures of, of, of how the nation is to engage in worship. But I'm gonna follow the preacher's lead because look what he says next. Of these things we cannot now speak of in detail. Right, because that's not his point. What he's getting to is something different. He's going to talk about these two rooms, and the items aren't his focus. Look, look at his focus. It's something else in verse six. He says, "These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties." And so, this first room is called the holy place. And so, so if you imagine this tent in the middle of the wilderness, right, and it had a a a, a fence around it, basically, that they would, that they would put up. And in the middle of the fence, there was this tent, and, and there was this curtain that you walked into the first room. And in that first room, uh, called the holy place, there was a table there that had bread, and there was a lamp. And what this pastor, what this preacher is saying is that that lamp, every day, had to be lit, and it had to be checked for oil. And every day, that bread had to be replaced. Every day in this first room, there were jobs that had to be done by priests, and the priests that got to work on them were numerous. And, but every day, day somebody had to go in there. And so this first room, there was this constant movement and this constant activity of stuff that had to get done every single day. But the other room, the most holy place, is different. Look at what happens in there in verse 7. It says, but into the second only the high priest goes, but he once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the first room is the, the holy place. The second room is called the most holy place. And it's that second room where it's believed that the presence of God dwelt. And instead of every priest having access to that place, one priest did, the high priest. And he only came once a year. And if you remember, when, when the preacher talked about the high priest a few chapters ago, not only could he just walk in there, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself to make sure his sins were covered. And for his sins, he had to sacrifice an entire bull, and then he had to sacrifice for the entire nation, and for the nation, he had to sacrifice a goat for the sins of the nation. And then he was to take that blood from the sacrifice of the goat into that room with him and to sprinkle it on all those items that are in that room to make a sacrifice for the sins of the nation and, and to make a sacrifice for his sins so that the nation could experience this forgiveness of God, because that was some of the expectation that God had. And this high priest, he's the one representing God to humanity and humanity to God. And so it's a big deal. And so this preacher is talking about these rooms. Look at verse 8. It says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places has, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. And so what this preacher is doing is, is he's looking at these two rooms in the tabernacle. And, and he's saying the presence of God dwelt in the most holy place. 
And as humans, as the nation of Israel, not only the nation of Israel, but as humans, there is this desire to have this relationship with God. Ecclesiastes says it. Ecclesiastes said that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man, and they don't even understand what to do with it. And so no matter who you are, if you are a human, God has placed in you this desire to have a relationship with something greater than yourself, with him. And the nation of Israel knew this, and and they knew the presence of God dwells in that room right there. But what this preacher is saying is that everybody has this longing to be in the presence of God. But before they can get to that room, there's this first room to deal with. And that first room has a pretty significant problem that has to be fixed. Look at verse, the rest of verse 9. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what this preacher is saying is that if God's presence dwells in the most holy place and the problem lives in the holy place, what is that problem? The problem is this, that the forgiveness offered in that place is temporary at best. Because remember, the priests are in there every single day changing out the oil, lighting the candle, changing out the bread. There's this constant activity and constant motion that makes this temporary. It doesn't produce any life change. It doesn't produce any real real life change. That first room is is what I'm talking about. You know, he took it to his uh, Hebrew congregation and kind of brought it to them in a contemporary way. I'm trying to bring it to us in a contemporary way and saying that room is that living room living that I'm talking about. That room is the place where the rules are established of what good behavior looks like. And what we've seen is that living room living never produces lasting life change. That's what this preacher is saying. If your life is in that room where every day there is a sacrifice for the atonement of sin, that doesn't produce any life change because that is temporary. It may create a behavior change for a moment, but it is temporary at best. And here's why I wanna kind of pull this out of the text because we do it all the time. And for those of you who have said yes to Jesus, there was a time in your life where you were a pro at living room living and even though you said yes to Jesus, it still lingers in our souls to feel like we have to behave before God. And here's what I mean. In every heart of every human, there is this desire to know God and to be in a relationship with him. But there's also this place in our soul where we kind of create our own living room. And that's the place that we go to because we think we can meet God there. That's the place where we're on our best behavior. That's the place that has the couch that only God can sit on. Right? We can't sit on it. That's the place where all the rules are so that we look the best we can possibly look for God. And we create these rules to cover up what's wrong in our life. It's this place to cover up the mistakes we make. It's the place where we hide. 
And the reason I say we all do this is because we are hardwired to do it. If you go all the way back to the garden, God created Adam and Eve and they were in this perfect relationship with God. And by perfect, I mean complete and I mean whole. And God would show up with them and they would walk in the garden in the cool of the day and talk. And there was nothing separating them until sin entered. And when sin entered the garden and they realized their own condition, they realized they could never be God. As a matter of fact, they realized they were completely human. God showed up for his morning walk. And what's, what did they do when they heard his voice? They hid. You see, where sin is, we hide. And, and, and here's, here's what I mean by that. If this book uh, was a list of all the sins that I had done, all right? That's what this book is. Oddly enough, it's called Predictably Irrational, which I think is fun. Um, uh, if, if this hand is me, and God has designed me to have a relationship with him. So this hand is him, this hand is me. And there's a problem. And that problem is there's something that separates us and it's my sin. And it's the sin that I inherited from Adam and Eve. It's the sin that I contributed to. And this book is full of all those sins. Now, what I will try and do in my living room living is that I will try and deal with these sins myself. But if you notice, there's one, th they separate me from God and they, they create this place where I hide. And, and even though I'm trying to deal with these sins, what, what I might try and do is I might try and turn my life around into a different direction, right? But that doesn't change anything, does it? I might try and turn over a new leaf, but that doesn't do anything, does it? Those sins are still there. You see, and for those of us here in this room, for those of you here in this room that have not said yes to Jesus, this is where you are. For those of us who have said yes to Jesus, we act like we're still here in this living room in our hearts. And what we do when we're like this is that we still hide. But what this preacher is saying is that this problem with this tabernacle living, this living room living, is that it only deals with sin temporarily. It does this. It says, all right, you can turn your life around and you can turn over a new leaf. But the problem is those are only temporary fixes. That sin is still there. But look at verse 11. It says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, and not by means of blood with goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. And so see, here's what happened. Jesus took those two rooms and made a better life. He made a better room. When Jesus died on the cross, something happened in the temple. Now, this preacher is talking about the tabernacle, but these people would have known uh, what he was referring to when he's talking about uh, the curtain, right? Because when Jesus died on the cross, as he took his last breath, there was a, a temple there in Jerusalem that had a most holy place. It had a room where it was believed the presence of God dwelt. And there were all these expectations and rules, and the same rule applied. Only one person could enter that room one time a year, and it was the high priest. And the high priest would make sacrifices for his sin and the sin of the nation, and every year he would go into that, to that most holy place, 
and he would do his job, and then he would leave, and then another high priest would do it the next year. When Jesus died on the cross and he breathed his last breath, the curtain that separated that most holy place from the rest of the temple, the scriptures say that that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top because a man could have done that, but it was torn from the top to the bottom because only God could do that. And what that showed is that that holy place, those separations that divide humanity from the presence of God, that is now open because of what Jesus had done. Because you see, there wasn't a high priest that went in there once a year. There was a different high priest that went in there. And he didn't go in there with the blood of goats and the, and the ashes of cows. He went in with his own blood. And so he didn't secure a temporary forgiveness. He secured an eternal forgiveness. You see, Jesus' death turned what was temporary to what is eternal. And this word redemption means to buy back. And so if we go back to this illustration of this is me and this is God and it's our sins that separate us and I can turn my life around, turn over a new leaf and that sin is still there. What this preacher to the Hebrews is saying is that Jesus bought the book of our sins and took it. So that now there's no more hiding. That when we say yes to Jesus, Jesus bought that book and now we can have the good and right and intimate relationship with God that he has always wanted for us and that we have always wanted from him. See, now we have this unhindered relationship with God that we need. And maybe, maybe you're here today and, and you thought Christianity was a living room living that it was about behaving and it was about coming to church looking your best. It was about acting like you had a relationship with God and presenting your best and hiding your worst from God's people and hiding your worst from God. Well, maybe today is the day you can stop trying to turn your life around and stop trying to turn over a new leaf and instead you can let Jesus pay the price for your sins. Let him buy the book. Because if this is you, all you need to do is say yes to Jesus. That's it. And if you'd like to have a conversation about that, on that Connect card that Scout talked about, there's a box that says interested in knowing more about a personal relationship with Jesus. I'll be glad to follow up with you on that. Or one of our staff would be glad to follow up with you on that. Because when you say yes to Jesus, look what you say yes to in verse 13. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works? Y'all get this. If you're a Jesus follower, if you have said yes to Jesus, then this last phrase describes a better life for your soul. The fact that your conscience has been cleansed of dead works. You know what this means? This means no more hiding. Because remember, Jesus is greater than any sin. You don't need to hide from God. You don't need to hide from God's people. It means that there's no more living room living. 
It means as a person who has said yes to Jesus that we are tempted to step into that living room again and put our best in front of each other. That when somebody says, how you doing? We say, okay. Instead of saying, no, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm not okay today. This morning, I woke up at 3.20 because of that storm. Anybody else hear the storm last night? Okay, mental note, if you buy a really cute metal table for your deck, don't put it by the window of your bedroom. Because that sucker sounds like a gong in the middle of the night when the rain's hitting, especially when it's coming down hard. And, and, and I woke up at 3.20, had a hard time going back to sleep. Honestly, Saturday night, I think there's a lot of stuff bouncing around in my head. I think there's a lot of spiritual warfare because I think we have an enemy that knows I'm gonna stand up here with my Bible open and that that has the potential to change lives. And if he can wear me out, great. And, and, and I fell back asleep about 6.40 to wake up at 6, I mean, about 5.40 to wake up at 6, which is always fun. And I got up and I walked out to the kitchen and our youngest son was awake and I said, you know, Luke, why don't you go ahead and start fixing your breakfast, which of course he promptly ignored me. And, and, and typically I've got enough patience to handle that, but, but I didn't this morning. And I thought about this message and I thought, I could just get angry with him and just be the dad that just comes down hard and he will probably rear up too and who knows where this is gonna go. Or I could be honest with him and not hide. And so I, I said, Luke, I need you to come here. And so he came to me and I said, listen, buddy, I didn't sleep well last night. And I told him, I said, you know, normally I've got this much patience. Right now I've got this much. I said, so how about this? If I ask you to do something, would you please just do it? He goes, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you, like about making his breakfast. And I said, okay, make your breakfast, would you? And he said, okay. You see, as a church, when we say yes to Jesus, we don't have to hide. It's okay to not be okay is what that means. Because where sin is, we hide. But Jesus has bought our book. And so we don't have to hide. You don't have to impress in public and be a jerk in private. You see, that'd be me being this pious, perfect person up here, but being a menace at home. And if you know me, one of the things I really strive for is to be the same Fred behind the pulpit that I am in private. Because I don't have to hide. And see, when we do this with people is one thing. We also do it with God. We avoid him instead of running to him when we sin. You see, that's living room living, and it's not the better living that Jesus provides. Because he gives us this eternal redemption. And here's what that means. And church, I want us to get this because I think it is transformative. That eternal redemption means that when Jesus bought the book, he didn't just buy chapters one through four. He bought the entire book. Which means this that you are as forgiven today as you will be when you see Jesus face to face in heaven. That's what eternal redemption means. The forgiveness that Jesus purchased for you wasn't purchased in phases. 
It was once for all. One sacrifice for all sins. And if this is true, then what that means is that we can be who we are right where we are. No hiding needed. This is how Jesus is greater than any sin. You see, when guilt says that I can't believe you sinned like that again and you want to hide, it's paid for. You're forgiven. When shame reminds you of that sin in your past that sounds so gross to you and and makes you feel like you're the only one who could have ever done that thing, or you're the only one who could have ever had that thing done to you, and you want to hide, Jesus paid for it. You're forgiven. When depression and despair rear their ugly heads, and that voice in your head says, you did it again, you fool. And you want to hide? Jesus paid for it. He bought the book. You're forgiven. And pay attention because this type of, give, of forgiveness produces something. Because at the very end of chapter 14, it says, to serve the living God. You see, our eternal redemption is eternal because God is eternal. He is a God of the past, he is a God of the future, and he is a God of the present. And as we go into communion, you know, when, when Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, uh, they didn't fully understand what it meant. They got it eventually. But then another New Testament came along later and said, you know, we're to do this in remembrance. And so churches throughout all history from the, from, from the resurrection until now have been taking communion to remember something and to bring something that happened in the past to the present because we have a living God because that gospel that Jesus preached is alive and well today because God is alive and well today. And so when you come to this table to take communion, we take communion remembering that we have a living God that we serve. Not a dead God, but a living God that we serve. And so as we go into communion today, what I would love for you to do is to take a moment. And if, and if, if there's something that you've been hiding from God, now's the time to confess it and to repent of it. If there's something that you've been hiding from your, from your best friend, confess it, repent of it. If there's something you've been hiding from your spouse, confess it, repent of it. Because our book has been bought and we don't need 